creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Today on Culture Click, we return to the Nona Bar for another nerdtastic nerd night. And if you haven't heard of this nerdy event, Nerd Night is a monthly history channel with beer held at the Nona Bar, where three lucky Winonans present their passions proudly. So if you have a nerdy hobby or concerningly obsessed with topics till you're considered a nerd, Nerd Night is a place to be. I'm Dylan Azate here to present you part one of Nerd Night 33, today on Culture Click. All right, all right, all right. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to Nerd Night. All right, this is my favorite part. I'm Emily. Everybody say hi, Emily. Hi, Emily. That's the best. Uh, okay, over here, that is Mark. Hi, everybody say hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Yep. Uh, and way in the back there, uh, that is Carl in the back. Everybody say hi, Carl. Hi. Yeah, very nice. All right, and uh, welcome to Nerd Night, uh, where we believe that learning is a little bit more fun when you are at the bar with your friends having a drink. So cheers, everybody. Uh, we, has, anybody ever, has anybody here not been to Nerd Night before? Yeah, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, we like to say that Nerd Night is kind of like the Discovery Channel, but with beer. That's kind of the tagline. Uh, and every time that we get together for one of these, we tell a little bit about the story about how Nerd Night began, because we're part of a national organization. People do these in, in cities around the country. Uh, so it all started with this guy, Chris. Uh, this is Chris in Boston drinking. You can also say hi, Chris, if you want. Thank you, Jen Anderson. <laughs> all right. Uh, and Chris uh, was a graduate student who really liked to uh, hang out at this bar called The Midway in Boston in the early 2000s. It's a halcyon time. Uh, and uh, Chris was a graduate student. He was a wildlife biologist. Uh, and he did research in Cameroon, in Africa, studying this kind of bird. This is an indigo bird. Looks pretty nice, right? Wrong. The indigo bird is a mean bird. <laughs> the indigo, it's a, it's a parasitic bird. Uh, it kicks other birds' uh, eggs out of the nest. And uh, oh, let's see, there's a, this should be an auto-playing video, but it is not doing it right now. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great video. You watch this bird, and he tries to kick other birds' eggs out of the nest. Oh, no. Ah, that's okay. Well, that's fine. Thank you, though. So I, I know, I know. You'll have, to, you'll have to come back. It'll probably be back. All right. We download these things. It's, it had to come from space, you know? Some of it got left behind. So thank you, Joyati, for that vote of confidence. All right. So this is, um, so, so Chris was a, a uh, you know, he really liked to talk about his research, as a lot of graduate students do. Uh, and, you know, he would go to his favorite bar, The Midway, and he would talk about it. And eventually the bartender was like, Chris, you gotta lay off talking about your research for a little bit. We will give you one night to talk all about your research, and then you gotta shut up about it for a little while and just let you know people hang out. Um, and so this is Chris, and you know he, he did that, and that was the birth of Nerd Night. He was just sharing something that he was really passionate about. Uh, and so Nerd Night started to be picked up at you know it was picked up by the Midway as a regular thing, uh, and then Chris's friend Matt. Uh, was hosting trivia nights in New York City. Uh, and Chris said, you know what? You should host a nerd night instead because a lot of people do trivia nights. Not a lot of people do nerd nights. 
Uh, and so that's how Nerd Night started, started spreading. It spread to New York City first. Uh, and now it's in over 100 cities around the country or, and around the world. Um, if you're traveling somewhere, you can look up if they have a Nerd Night, and they might. Uh, so how did Nerd Night come to Winona? Well, uh, this is, uh, so this is Matt, who is friends with Chris, who started Nerd Nights in, in New York City. Uh, Chris knew this woman, Michelle, uh, who's a good friend of our Nerd Night boss, Carl. Uh, they met in graduate school at a brew fest. Uh, they have a lot in common. They both love animals. Uh, Michelle is a vegan veterinarian, and Carl really likes meat. <laughs> but they both loved nerdiness and beer, and so they really, uh, uh, they really hit it off and decided to start Nerd Night Ithaca. Um, so Carl ran that while he was in graduate school. Um, then he went away to Germany, to Heidelberg, to do a postdoc for a while, uh, and then he came to Winona. He's a professor at Winona State now. Um, and he thought to himself, hmm, Winona beer is delightfully cheap. I would like to learn and have a beer. I'm going to start a nerd night. So he started kind of asking around about, you know, who, wants, who wanted to start a nerd night. Um, and uh, I moved to Winona a few years ago and had done nerd nights in Madison, was a big fan of it. So, you know, we started, uh, we started bossing the nerd night together. And then uh, now we have a new boss, relatively new now, uh, Mark, who recently moved to Winona and is also getting involved, and that is great. So that's the story of Nerd Night Winona. Wonderful. All right. This is our 33rd Nerd Night Winona. Uh, and with that, I would like to introduce our first speaker, Carl Firkinoff. Yeah, he's coming up here with two beers. Woo! How now? Oh, there we go. <clears throat> so I'm drinking hams tonight. You'll... We got... Because it's so good. It's hands. It's also the new hipster beer. If you didn't know, um, I don't know if it still is, but a couple years ago, during like 2001, during the pandemic, uh, hands was like the fastest growing beer brand in America. Um, th this is important. We'll see this later on. <clears throat> I know you're like, how the heck does this have to do with astronomy? Well, my talk is called Drunk Science, uh, Studying the Most Extreme Galaxies, uh, in the universe. Hold on one second. I'm going to start my own timer because I'm like that. So, well, there's supposed to be a timer on this projector remote, and uh, I have bad equipment, so it's not working. <laughs> All right. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, okay, so obviously you're like, what the heck do you mean by drunk? I mean, you're Folks that went out of state, I, I can't, I don't drink during the day. That's, that's true. Uh, and so we're going to get to that. But I do like to have a beverage every now and then, uh, whether it's, you know, coming out of a Heineken mini keg, a giant margaritas, double fisting wine and beer, double fisting beverages on the streets of Puerto Rico on New Year's Eve. Oh, discovering hams in upstate New York in uh, 2019. I was, I was amazed. It was awesome. They have fancier cans now. Uh, I also like to uh, mix uh, drinking with fire. This is uh, the German classic Feuerzeugenbola, uh, which is all over German Christmas markets now because there's a Nazi-era movie about Feuerzeugenbola. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a whole thing. Uh, giant Marguerite, or excuse me, giant Bloody Marys here in Winona. Giant beers and pretzels in Germany, and giant mistakes like drinking a hundred bottles of Boone's Farm wine with your fellow undergraduate <laughs> physics majors. 
Or perhaps the Carlo Rossi challenge, which is you share a four-liter bottle of Carlo Rossi wine with a friend. Yeah. Oh, but there's more mellow things, like Shell's Bachfest, which is like the first weekend in March. It's usually right around my birthday. You can go get your beer poked. Good times. Um, on the more scientific side, I've been known to study the extinction coefficient of beer as an undergraduate in an optics class. I wrote my thesis at a place with dollar beer. Why? Because the beer and the popcorn was cheaper than coffee. Um, all that being said, I, so I like a beverage, but I am an astronomer. I get to use telescopes like this one. The Atacama Pathfinder Experiment, Apex, uh, in the Atacama Desert of Chile. And on this telescope, I get to put this thing, which is called Zeus II, the second generation redshift and early universe spectrometer. So this is what I uh, built as a graduate student uh, to study galaxies. And uh, you can imagine you know, that instrument, that telescope, don't really go well with drinking. I mean, million-dollar equipment, drinking, bad idea. So it's not, the drunk science is not, I'm not getting drunk and using those things. People would frown on that. So we'll get, we'll get to the drunk science part. But for right now, let's focus on the science. And so what is the science that I do? Well, I study galaxies. I study extreme galaxies in the early universe. And how do I do that? I use, study them via things called, what I like to describe them as extreme emission lines. Um, to do this, though, we can't just do it in any place. We also kind of have to go to some extreme locations. But you're like, Kara, how is it extreme? Well, let's start with it's big in space. Uh, how big, you're wondering? How, just how, how big? Yeah. Well, let's start with Earth. Earth isn't that big. It is 13,000 kilometers in diameter, though. But Jupiter is 10 times the size of Earth. The sun is 100 times the size of Earth. Um, let's talk about the mass for an instant, for a moment. The Earth is six times 10 to the 27 grams. Yeah. The Jupiter is a thousand times the mass of the Earth. The Sun is a million times the mass of the Sun. And astronomers, since it's big in space, that's what we measure things in. Measure them in units of our Sun, solar masses. For reference, anybody chemistry fans here? Chemistry fans? You can admit it. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, Avogadro's number? I don't know, when you learned about Avogadro's number, it was a chemistry like, that's a big number. Six times 10 to the 23rd, it's not a big number. Earth is 10,000 moles of grams. Take that, chemistry. <laughs> anyway, so solar mass, keep that in mind. Solar mass, a million Earths is a solar mass. Okay, we also like things are bright in space. How bright? Well, the sun has what we call luminosity. It's how much energy per second is coming from the sun. Four times 10 to the 26 watts. Now, we don't really buy these anymore. They're illegal. Um, but if you could buy 100-watt incandescent light bulbs, <laughs> that is equivalent to 4 trillion trillion light bulbs. Okay, so we got solar mass and solar luminosity. <laughs> yeah. So keep that in mind. Okay, so... Now let's get to the extreme galaxies. The universe itself is extreme. Let's get to the extreme galaxies. Yes, there are galaxies in the universe, but they weren't always there. If we go back far enough, we have this thing called the Big Bang. You know, the universe formed, Big Bang happened. It was all the matter and energy of the universe was this big, hot, dense soup. Eventually, though, the universe is expanding, just like uh, you know, expanding gases cool off. The universe is expanding. It cools off over time. Eventually, it cools off enough, we get this cosmic microwave background. Problem is, though, it cools off enough. Before You had originally like, electrons and protons like you know, separate, doing their thing. It cools off enough, they get together. And when they do that, 
those neutral hydrogen atoms like to absorb light. So we call those the dark ages. Eventually, though, it cools off enough, and we get our first stars, which emit light, our first galaxies, our first supernova, uh, and that energy is able to reionize uh, the universe. And once that happens, then the light now can stream, and we can actually start observing the emission from our very first galaxies. So our first galaxies, we think, form sometime around the, a billion years. Um, you know, we're not exactly sure. Somewhere between 100 million to a billion years, we get our first galaxies. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to understand. So for reference, what is our galaxy like? Well, if we could get outside our galaxy, it might look like this one. And then our modern day universe, our Milky Way, is pretty typical. It's only one, about a, mil a trillion times the mass of our sun. Um, it's only about 20 billion times brighter than our sun. And it forms about one new star per year. Now, that doesn't sound very impressive, right? But this thing's been around for billions of years. So over time, it can, it can make a lot of stars. But this is us. This is us now. If we go back in time, we do know things were very different. And in fact, one of the things that was different is uh, how many stars are formed. So this is a graph. The basic thing is it's low here, about one. And then if you go back in time, it's about a factor of 10 higher. So if we go back in time, so this is the age of the universe now. So this is today. The universe is about 14 billion years old. If we get to the, when the universe was only middle age, 7 billion years ago, the galaxies were on average forming stars 10 times faster. Now that's on average. Some were even more extreme. One of those extreme beauties is SMM G02399. Yeah, great name. I mean, there's actually... It's, there's an information, that's actually a coordinate. It's like the survey they discovered it and the coordinate on the sky where it is. Um, but the universe was only two and a half billion years old. So, sorry, what's that? Yeah, so two and a half billion years old. Um, but this thing is actually forming a thousand stars per year, a thousand times more uh, effective at forming stars than our own galaxy. It's twice the mass of our galaxy and it's 600 times brighter. So this is what I'm talking about, extreme galaxies. And the question we might ask is, why is it so massive? Why is it forming so many stars? Why is it so bright? And where do the elements come from? That's kind of just thrown in there. But when the universe formed, all we really had was hydrogen and helium. So the stuff that you and I made from came from other places. And where do they come from? They come from stars. So we have hydrogen, we have helium. Uh, there's lithium, the, the lithium beryllium, there, there might, there's a little bit of other stuff, but everything else came from large stars, supernova, small stars, everything else in the universe came from stars, and except for this part down here, which came from humans, which I think is kind of cool. There's actually elements in the universe that only exist because of intelligent life, at least that far as we know. So, Okay, how do we study this? How do we attempt to answer these questions? Emission lines. What are emission lines? Well, every element will emit a unique signature of life, or so of light. And so if you can go and you can look at the light coming from a galaxy, you can attempt to discover and detect and identify the elements that are in that galaxy. Now, I, you know, elements will emit at kind of across all wavelengths from, from uh, ultraviolet to optical, visible, we see with our eye, to infrared, into radio. But I specifically look at the ones in the far infrared. And I'm not going to go too much into why. Our next speaker, Cody, he's going to talk more about why the infrared is so cool. Um, but the wavelengths I specifically look at um, are wavelengths of light that are about a tenth of a millimeter in size. 
Um, and for reference, the visible light is one two thousandth of a millimeter. So this is small, but it's much bigger than the light that we see with our eyes. But you're like, Kyle, how are these emission lines extreme? Well, it comes down to the 1%. Now, these aren't the one percenters of the top earners, the top income wells. No. This is, this is the 1% of emission lines. So here's an emission line that I detected with Zeus, too. It's really nice. You're like... There's like six data points there, Carl. So this is hard. So the wavelengths that I, I observe are technologically very hard to detect, even though uh, galaxies produce them very easily. So this is a spectral line. So this is how bright the light is, and this is wavelength. And so there's basically zero, zero, and in the middle, it's high. Yay, so we detect something. If I go in and add up all this energy, all this luminosity that's inside, that's being emitted in this emission line, that is 30 billion times the sun's brightness. Just in a single little narrow emission line. That is equivalent to the entire brightness of the Milky Way. Coming from a single emission line from a single extreme galaxy in our early universe. For reference, to kind of get an understanding, imagine we have like galaxies background light. So this is just... The, you know, there's emission lines, but then there's light coming from other places, kind of background light. We can think of it like here in Winona, right? We, all the stray street lights and stuff kind of make a, a background light that we see in the sky. Galaxies kind of do the same thing. They have this background light, scattered light coming from, from stars and things. If we add this uh, far infrared emission line on top of it, it would be like taking our sugar loaf, which is our background light, and building the Burj Khalifa Tower on top of it. Okay. So th these things are really, really bright. But they're useful because they are signatures of the atoms uh, that are in there, and they can tell us about the galaxy. To do this, though, uh, we can't just look at this here in Winona. We've got to go to extreme locations. And as an astronomer, I've been really privileged to go to some awesome places. One of them is Heidelberg, Germany, with a freaking castle that I got to go by every day. And I got to drink beer in plastic bottles. People talk about, like, that's weird. But they got a screw cap on it, so you can, like, drink half of it and save it for later. It's great. And then you can grill some sausages. You know, it's, right. You have le one liter beers. Uh, you go to, they have one size at Oktoberfest. One liter. Um, they also have half liters of wine at their wine festivals, if that's more your, your bagger. Three, liters bo three liter bottles of uh, Doppelbach beer, which is 8.5% alcohol. This was my housewarming party when I was lived there. It was great. Uh, pretzels that are as big as your beer. And uh, this is my most recent one. Giant pounds of roasted pork knuckles. Yes. And, if you're, and they have the oldest am uh, amusement ride at Oktoberfest. It's called the Teufelsrad. So you get a bunch of drunk people. You put on the spinning platform. And you see who the last one is on the platform. Okay. So this is... Germany, most people say, Germany's not extreme. It's pretty extreme. But we don't get to observe there either. It's just a cool place I got to go because I'm an astronomer. The problem with trying to observe in Germany or here in Winona is this thing we call the atmosphere. And boo, atmosphere. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, we need it to breathe, but astronomers, let's get rid of it. Let's, um, and this is really why. So in the wavelengths I've observed, if we look at how much light is absorbed by the atmosphere, so these are like gamma rays, x-rays, we get to visible, oh, no light's observed. We actually can see. That's why we can see. But then you get to the infrared and the submillimeter where I observe, and the atmosphere absorbs it all. It's, you can't do it um, from places like Winona. So there are, you know, the question, though, is why? Why can't we observe at these wavelengths in a place like Winona? 
And it's because of this. Waterfalls, no, just the water. So the water in our atmosphere absorb these wavelengths of light. Um, and specifically, we measure this in a unit, something called precipital water vapor. Um, so you take all the, you look up, and then you take all the water vapor in there and condense it. And be like, you know, splash on me. And then you measure how much that is. So what do people think? What's the tip? If we measure the precipital water vapor today, or typically on average in Winona, how much do you think we'd have? A lot. It, an inch? Two inches? A foot? Two gallons? So it, we condense all the water vapor of ours, it would be six centimeters. Six centimeters. It, that's actually, I mean, doesn't seem like a lot. For reference, that's about half, like, if your pint's, really, it's time for another beer. It's about that much. So here's a graph now. If, uh, here's a graph of transmission versus the wavelengths I observe at. So this is 0.4 millimeters. And you can see we got, we got a six up there. And how much gets through the atmosphere when there's a six millimeters of water vapor? Basically nothing. So this is a factor of 10 less water vapor than we have here in Winona, and it's still too much. Um, there's a little bump over there, but at the wavelength I want to let's say 400 microns, 350, 3.35 millimeters, no light gets through. So we need to go to a place that has less water vapor. Basically, we can't have any more water vapor than about one millimeter. So, and so uh, the green line here is how much of the light gets through uh, when there's one millimeter of precipital water vapor, and it's about 30%. Uh, if on a really great observing conditions, you'd have half a millimeter, and then you get 50%. So that means half the light coming from these extreme galaxies, just like the, it's like a tax. The atmosphere is like, atmosphere tax, taking your light away, can't detect it. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we overcome this water vapor? Where are there places on the planet Earth that only have half a millimeter of precipital water vapor? That's 100 times less water vapor than we have here in Winona. Deserts. High places, okay, you could go to space too. Cody, Cody will talk about that. But for me, deserts and high places, well, there's a few of those. Uh, we could go to uh, Mauna Kea, volcano in Hawaii. Uh, we could go to Antarctica, or we could go to the Atacama Desert in Chile. These are all places that observe at light at these wavelengths. Um, so where I've been going most recently, I spent a lot of time in grad school in Hawaii, uh, it's kind of weird when you're like sitting next to somebody that's going to Hawaii with their scuba gear and you're there with your winter coat. Um, it's kind of weird. Uh, but I go to Atacama Desert in Chile. So uh, this is where, where the site is. It's right near the border between Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina. So that's like right there um, near the town of uh, – it's about uh, – I think that's like four hours to Antofagasta. Um, and keep zooming in, um, you're like, wow, that looks very brown. This is, there's very little vegetation, it's very brown. Uh, there's, uh, the important thing here is, so the star is where uh, this apex telescope is that I showed you, and uh, that's at 16,750 feet, so really high altitude. For reference, there's a little town called San Pedro de Atacama, that's at 8,000 feet. So when we drive up to the telescope, we're actually going, uh, change in elevation of over 8,000 feet just to drive up there. Uh, it takes about an hour and a half uh, to get to the telescope, uh, and you get up there, and there it is, right? So you're up there. Um, now, sometimes during the year, it does snow, but uh, uh, when I was there, we don't want snow, so it's, very, it's usually very dry. Sometimes they have, get so much snow, they get big snow banks that last a really long time. Uh, for reference, so if you're down where San Pedro is and look up, 
What's interesting is you know, San Pedro is already at 8,000 feet, and the reason why we built these telescopes where we are in Chile is because it's this giant plane at almost 17,000 feet. So it's not like a, a peak mountain in the Rockies. There's a lot of space to build your telescopes and build your infrastructure. So that's not actually the size of the telescope. That's, that's just a character. But that's, that's where the telescope would be. Um, now, that star, the reason why I put that star there is where I did my grad school, uh, Cornell, they're actually building a telescope on top of this peak, which was an old uh, volcano. Uh, and so that's another uh, almost 2,000 feet higher. Um, okay, great. So we're at about 17,000 feet. And uh, basically, the amount of oxygen at that level is about half of what you would experience here in Winona. It, it basically sucks. You're up there for the first few days. You got to acclimate. It basically feels like you're in a nonstop hangover. Like just, you got a headache. You're like dry mouth. You don't you don't want to eat much those first few days because whatever little oxygen you have goes right to your food. Chapstick is your friend. If you forget to bring your chapstick, you're gonna have some really chapped lips, and you end up peeing a lot because you're drinking a lot of water because it's so dry and high altitude. Uh, and the problem is, even after you acclimate, if you move around, if you're like, all of a sudden you're like, and just stand up quick like you normally would, you just pass out. Like, you could be like, let me just lean against this wall for a second. Um, so, and of course, you do stupid things. So, you know, inadvertently. Like, you think you're really smart trying to solve problems up at altitude, and you get down to the base camp, and you're like, why did we do that? Like, it's really, really tricky. Well, the reason why we do it comes to the title of my talk. So... Uh, folks have done research into how amazing we are when we're drunk. So uh, here, here's some research. Uh, they basically gave people a task and said, do this thing. And then they had half the group stay sober and do it again. And then the other half, they progressively got them more and more drunk. And so this is their blood alcohol content. So by, you know, uh, point one... Uh, they are essentially, the drunk person is only half as fast as the sober person. You're, they're not, you're not getting anything done. So 50% as fast as a sober person when you're a 0.1 blood alcohol content. Well, let's talk about what happens when you go to high altitude. Again, scientists ask all these questions like, what's going on? Well, if you uh, give people a test right, at, you know, 1,800 feet, kind of, you know, normal altitude, uh, you know, hey, they, on average, they get 100% correct. You go up to like 14,000 feet, eh, maybe 75% correct. Um, you go to 16,000 feet, yeah, only about 15% correct. So what does that mean? It means that if you're at 16,000 feet, it's like having a blood alcohol content of 0.1. So even though I'm not drinking, I get to do drunk science when I'm at altitude. <laughs> now, the real best part is even when we're down at 8,000 feet, because the telescope runs by Germans, you get to drink and sometimes observe. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Questions? All right, thank you very much, Carl. Yeah, round of applause. So I'll just quick start off with your, your, with, uh, your name and what you do here at Nerd Night. Sure. Uh, I'm uh, Carl Ferkenhoff. I'm one of our nerd bosses that help organize and run our weekly Nerd Nights. And tonight I'm uh, giving a talk. I'm one of our speakers. Awesome, awesome. Well, um, how long have you been involved in Nerd Night? Well, so here in Winona, since we started in 2018, uh, so we went basically two and a half years, and then pandemic happened, and then we took a few years off. Uh, but uh, we just wrapped up our third, actually, like, full year of, of doing it. 
uh, but it will have actually been almost uh, exactly six years since we since we originally started our first Nerd Night Winona. Awesome. Well, what made you want to uh, host Nerd Night here in Winona to begin with? So I always think like and have enjoyed these sort of like uh, experiences where you get to have like a, a interaction with a scientist or an expert in a bar. You know, some might call it like outreach, but outreach targeted at uh, adults. And I looked when I got here, we didn't really have something like that going on in Winona. Uh, and I had done and uh, been involved with and gone to Nerd Nights in other cities. And I thought Nerd Night would be uh, an excellent fit for Winona because uh, while we get to tap into uh, the great faculty and stuff we have at our universities, Nerd Night really is open to anybody, uh, community members, anybody that has a passion uh, and wants to share it, they can come up and give a 15-minute talk on it. Awesome. Well, uh, if someone really wanted to go up and discuss uh, for Nerd Night, where can they do that? Yeah, so the, we have a Facebook page. If you just search in Google, Nerd Night Winona, uh, or on Facebook, Nerd Night Winona, you'll find our Facebook page, or we have a website, uh, winona.nerdnight.com, uh, and you, there's uh, contact information there to get a hold of us. All right, sweet. Um, so what would be your best advice for someone who would who want, who is like maybe too shy to go ahead and speak or don't have enough motivation? Yeah, I mean, so certainly uh, my first recommendation is come and see what Nerd Night is like, uh, and then give it a shot. Um, we've had everybody. Obviously, our faculty often have that give talks or have a lot of public speaking experience, um, but we've had folks that basically have no public speaking experience, uh, and they basically just kind of sat up there and talked about their passion. Um, so we are really open and welcome and comfortable crowd, and even if you're, you're shy or nervous, this might actually be a good place uh, to kind of get that first experience that you maybe haven't had before. Right. So uh, before we wrap this up, anything else that you'd like to quick add? Uh, no. Um, we've got Nerd Nights coming up the fourth Wednesday of uh, every month at No Name Bar uh, through May. Um, so hopefully you can join us. Awesome. Well, thank you. All right. Do you have any questions for Carl? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Yes. Do people bring oxygen? So, um, yes. So, um, it's a little bit complicated because, um, like, to actually have oxygen regularly, you got to get a prescription for it, actually. Um, but the the for kind of emergencies for the people that are visiting the telescope, they do have emergency bottles of oxygen up there. Um, but for us, the main thing actually is um, the the telescope itself. That's just the telescope, but next to it, I never, it's not in any of the pictures I had. Um, there's a control room, which is basically just a, a me big metal shipping container. It's got computers and, you know, it's all furnished. That's actually oxygenated. It's not pressurized. Um, so your, your ability of your body to absorb the oxygen isn't as good, but it's 21% it's oxygen. It's the same oxygen level you would expect down here um, uh, so that actually helps a lot, especially those first few days. If you're feeling, you know, you go do a little bit of work out on the telescope, installing the instrument, getting it ready to observe. You're like, okay, gotta go take a break, and you go sit in the oxygenated cabin for a little bit, uh, and you feel much, feel much better. Yeah. Oh, I got a question back here. So when you get to see the light, what does it tell you about the age of the galaxy that you're looking at? Yeah, so it really depends on what specific one of these extreme emission lines we look at. I primarily look at the emission lines in the infrared from oxygen, carbon, or nitrogen. And observing the different combinations of them can tell you things like the age of the star formation. Like, when was the most recent burst of star formation? Was it very recent? Or was, has it not formed stars for a while? 
the thing that's a little bit confusing is I say, you know, the star formation rate is 1,000 solar masses or 1,000 equivalent sun-like stars per year. But really, it ends up being over an average, right? Because we're looking at it right now, but the light we detect is coming from stars that all have like various different lifetimes. So it ends up being a little bit complicated, but we do can, we can get a sense of you know, how old the, the most recent bursts of stars are. We can also use it to figure out like the density of gas, how dense the gas is, um, uh, how, much other, how much it's been enriched by previous generations of stars producing new elements. Uh, and then we can also figure out, excuse me, um, just how many stars are there. Um, and so we try and figure out all those things, and we do that from as many different galaxies as we can, and we try and paint a picture. And we have learned some things. So one of the re things we, we now know pretty well is that one of the reasons why these galaxies are forming so many more stars is they had so much more gas available to form them. Um, now, the problem is, of course, you know, the galaxies can still be unique, and so there's still a lot of the details that we are still figuring out. And you know, we always are getting new capabilities and new abilities um, and pushing back even further earlier in the universe what we can observe. And so it's really being in the news, and you'll see some pretty pictures from Cody of our newest instrument, James Webb Space Telescope, uh, the JWST, uh, being able to show, like, you know, push back our understanding in the, uh, uh, even earlier in the universe. Uh, and some of the things we've learned have kind of upset what we thought we knew uh, with our current observations. It is great. Keeps me employed. Well, I, I get to teach a lot, but it keeps the grant money coming. <laughs> All right, got another question back here. What would be the neatest, coolest, most amazing thing that you have found that you were not expecting when you were starting to look? for it um so well i think there's two things one i i didn't talk about here i could do a whole nother talk on this just the tech just the technology we need to to detect these is really like cutting edge the technology we use is actually has some of the same technology that's used in uh attempts to make quantum computers uh and then our detectors themselves actually the only place they're used is in the astronomy that they do so there's no real applicable use uh, in like smartphone cameras or things like that. And so the, it's been a really long time. It's really hard to develop that. It's taken a long time. Um, probably the most recent thing I find, I've found really interesting is there's this one emission line that should be really bright um, from oxygen, uh, but it's, sometimes it's not. Um, uh, it gets absorbed, the, the other gas, the other oxygen. You know, so there'll be some parts in the galaxy which are emitting the oxygen's light, but then some of the oxygen molecules are just absorbing it. And depending on the, prop, the type of galaxy, the specific galaxy you're looking at, it could go either way. Sometimes it's really bright and sometimes it's dim. And that was, in hindsight, I we should have expected it. Um, but people get this collective, in the field, get this collective excitement. Like, yeah, we're going to detect this. And I'm like, eh, no, actually we didn't. And now that we think about it, no, that's not that. But what's exciting about this is that oxygen has another emission line at a slightly different wavelength. Uh, it's a little bit fainter, but it doesn't have the same problem. And I recently got a pretty large uh, amount of observing time with a telescope that's right next to Apex called ALMA. It's actually 60 of the dishes that Apex, uh, identical dishes to Apex. Uh, it's, it's currently the largest astronomical observatory on the planet. Um, and uh, so I got some data that should hopefully be coming in March and April uh, with that, which is exciting. Okay, the lines you're looking at are in the far, I, uh, far infrared, I assume because it's so heavily redshifted. Yes, if so... Was, if that was where, say, Andromeda was, what part of the spectrum would that stuff be in? 
Yeah. yeah. So the line exactly. So so I didn't uh, in the interest of time I didn't didn't talk about this. So the lines are emitted exactly actually in the far infrared. So one of the lines, a very popular one, is from carbon, and that's emitted at uh, uh, 0.150 uh, millimeters. But because the universe is expanding, when you get to one of these galaxies uh, that I observe, at like when let's say the universe was only seven billion years old, so when the universe was middle age that light's actually been shifted to 300 microns, so 0.3 millimeters. And that's what we built Zeus II to do. So if you want to look at galaxies in the early universe, you have to account for the, the fact the universe expands and the light gets shifted. Um, so yeah, so if we observe that emission line from Andromeda, my instrument Zeus II wouldn't be able to detect it. Um, and actually nothing on the ground could detect it because it's like... You basically have to have zero water vapor. Even half a millimeter is not enough if you're at 0.15 millimeters. At 0.3 millimeters, you're okay, but 0.15, no. Uh, and so that's actually, Cody will talk about that solution. Um, yeah. Okay, so you're able to see um, how many stars were formed in a recent time and able mm -hmm. to look backwards at what's been formed, but are you able to see what's in the mix to be made ahead of time? Are you able to see what's kind of uh, waiting for that birthing moment? Yeah, you, you actually can get some sense of that. Um, so stars form by collapsing gas. And so um, if you look at, an, you know, okay, stars themselves are actually gas, but it's gas that has started to go through nuclear fusion. There's a bunch of gas in galaxies that is cold, and it actually is cold. It's like only 50 degrees above absolute zero or colder. And that gas, it's really cold, and gravity will eventually cause it to collapse and form a star. And so um, we don't know when it would happen, but if you look at a galaxy, and most of their galaxy is in this cold, dense gas... Um, but yet they don't have a lot of star starlight, visible light, then you're like, well, this galaxy has the potential to do it. Um, and now what's cool is um, even you know, for any specific galaxy, we can't say when it is, but what we can do is find a similar galaxy, um, a similar mass, but, um, and a similar amount of molecular gas, but has turned, like the star formation has just started. And so we'll look at a different part of the sky, maybe a slightly different redshift, so a different time in the universe, and we can start piecing things together. The fact that the universe is expanding and also that light has a finite speed makes our job possible. It allows us to actually look back in time uh, and piece things together that where normally these, these processes take millions, hundred millions, or billions of years, by looking at different galaxies that kind of piece it together, we can actually put it, build a story of what's going on in the universe. All right, we're going to take one more question, and then I think we're, we'll wrap it. I'll go really quick. I have other questions, too. But Cheers. so here's what I'm wondering is, how long are you staying there? And are you driving from that little town up <sighs> to the telescope every day, or are you staying up at, at the 16,000 feet? Because I'm wondering when this gets dangerous. Okay, so... How long do we stay at the telescope? It really depends if you're a grad student or not, or the senior research associate at, yeah, or the senior research associate at Cornell. So usually when we go on a kind of uh, observing campaign, the current grad student is basically going to be there for the whole observing trip. They're not all at 17,000 feet for the whole trip, but they're either staying in San Pedro de Atacama, where the control room, where the, the dorms are, uh, for the whole trip. Uh, and then, like, we have this, he's German, he's very stereotypical German. He's like, I will be there the whole time. I, I pain is nothing. Uh, he, um, 
they're all also. So when I went to Apex, I was there for a month and a half. I was so, and now once you actually start observing, once the instrument's been installed, things are working right, there's really no reason to go up to the telescope. We can be able to control it completely remotely, uh, and we stay down at the base camp at 8,000 feet. Um, now, of course, it's still not great because, well, you know, we could have basically observed 24 hours a day. So some people have to be on a night schedule, some be up to the day, and it can get kind of long. Usually, we'll have a continuous period of two to three weeks where we actually get to observe. When we go up to the telescope, they have rules on how long that you can be up there. Um, they are pretty flexible with us, though, because they know we have a lot of experience, our group, uh, going up there. And so usually, like, when we first are installing, getting the instrument ready, uh, we'll be up there, well, they typically don't want us to be up there more than eight hours. Um, when th if there's issues that arise, we are often able to convince them to let us be up there longer. Um, but definitely, like, your first three days there, you're maybe up for four hours, six hours um, until you acclimate, you know, and your body body will be like, I need more red blood cells, right? And it will start making, making, you know, and, and you know, kind of get you used to, used to that environment. Fantastic, right? Let's give Carl another round of applause. <laughs> All right. Well, don't go too far. We do have two more speakers coming up. We're going to take a quick five-minute break, uh, grab another drink, and be ready to see Carl uh, see Cody speak. Thanks again to the No Name Bar and the hosts of Nerd Night for making this whole event possible. Be sure to tune in next week for a part two of this House of Nerdvana. To check out more of this nerdtastic event, check out their Facebook at Nerd Night Winona or winona.nerdnight.com. Otherwise, check out to see if there's a Nerd Night near you at nerdnight.com. That's N-E-R-D-N-I-T-E dot com. I'm Del Nazate, and to keep up with all things Winona or the surrounding area, tune in to Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 here on 89.5 KQAL. Or listen to previous episodes of Culture Click on your favorite streaming services. Find links at kqal.org. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. <laughs>